This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There's a seemingly never-ending list of time-honored descriptions of those who choose the clergy as their path in life. Generosity, patience, kindness, compassion, and virtue are just a few of the qualities that come to mind. Some people would be familiar with nuns from the context of school, usually in the form of swift discipline and harsh punishments. This is in stark contrast to the light-hearted, feel-good Hollywood portrayals of these religious women in movies like The Sound of Music, The Flying Nun, and Sister Act. But sometimes, it turns out that a life of poverty, chastity, and devotion does not necessarily make the clergy infallible. While there are plenty of stories of nuns doing amazing work around the world, this episode is not about them. This one is all about what happens when good nuns go bad. Sister Mary Margaret Kruper. She devoted her life to not only serving God and the community, but to being an educator, joining the convent at age 18. After completing a bachelor's degree in sociology, she went on to teach in various Catholic schools throughout Nevada, Washington, and Idaho. In 1988, Sister Mary took up the position of principal at St. James Catholic School. The elementary school, located in Torrance, California, was part of the parish of St. James, with the church itself in nearby Rodondo Beach. In addition to teaching, Sister Mary's role included not just administrative tasks, but also the fiscal responsibilities. Like many schools, money was tight when it came to funding specific projects and making ends meet. So, Sister Mary kept a tight grip on the purse strings when it came to both spending and raising money for the school. She managed all aspects of the budget, including the way tuition fees and charitable donations were allocated. From time to time, she would authorize tuition increases to help keep the school from going under financially. Parents were generally understanding, and most continued to make separate donations when they could. Sister Mary had oversight of the school's bank accounts to help ensure the accurate accounting of income and expenses. She was also an authorized signatory. One of the accounts was specifically used for school savings, while the other was an account used to pay the nun's living expenses. In 1996, Sister Mary hired Sister Lana Chang to teach the school's 8th grade class. The women had taught together years earlier back in Idaho. Sister Lana was considered an excellent educator with years of experience in the classroom. Over the years, The two nuns had become close friends, and even shared a townhouse owned by the archdiocese. The pair lived a modest lifestyle, driving to school in their modest cars. Every month, their minimal living expenses were taken care of by the parish. It was all pretty routine. When it came to raising funds for the school, Sister Mary was known for coming up with some creative ideas. Traditionally not associated with the Catholic Church, 
One of her ideas to generate revenue included Vegas-style gambling, Charity poker nights and other school-sponsored cash games were not out of the ordinary. Also, it was not uncommon that Sister Mary herself was one of the players left sitting at the winner's table. But it was all in good fun, and more importantly, it was for a good cause. It didn't take long before Sister Lana was promoted to vice-principal, becoming Sister Mary's right-hand nun. When the two were not spending their time teaching children or fundraising on behalf of the school, they enjoyed taking short breaks to relax and unwind. Their trips, however, were not exactly religious retreats. Instead, they headed for destinations like Las Vegas and Lake Tahoe for some partying on a biblical level. While the image of two nuns cutting loose in Sin City was not exactly typical, it was difficult for anyone to blame them for wanting to have a good time after all their selfless fundraising work. As far as anyone who knew them was concerned, they had earned it. In 2018, the time had come for 77-year-old Sister Mary to retire as school principal. She'd had a long and distinguished career, and now it was time to kick back and relax. Her second-in-command and close friend, 67-year-old Sister Lana, retired at the same time. While the women would no longer have the benefit of living in the church-owned townhouse, they had saved enough to move into another home in the area. They were looking forward to spending much of their newfound time along their favorite strip. But if they thought easing into retirement would be smooth, they were wrong. As it turned out, what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. With both the principal and vice principal roles open at the same time, the school board took the opportunity to change them to salaried positions. This meant the school's financial records would need to be audited and released to the board. What should have been a standard review quickly raised some interesting questions. It was clear from the records that Sister Mary, who knew the audit was coming, had taken steps to cover up numerous irregularities. According to those involved, she had directed her administrative staff to alter and in some cases destroy certain financial records earlier in the school year. The cover-up, it turned out, was far from an immaculate deception. In November 2018, parents of the roughly 300 students of St. James Catholic School received an unexpected letter from church officials. The letter stated that, following a forensic audit of the school's accounting, Sister Mary and Sister Lana had stolen a substantial amount of funds from the school's bank accounts. It was not only a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments, but it was also a totally shitty thing to do. Initial figures estimated that the nuns had stolen around half a million dollars from the school, which authorities believe was spent on gambling trips and credit card debt. The audit revealed they had been embezzling funds for at least a decade maybe longer. 
So much for the argument that it was a momentary lapse of judgment. The church and Sister Mary's attorney would later claim that she was mentally ill, which impaired her ability to distinguish between right and totally uncool. When the audit was finished, the archdiocese went to the police with their findings. However, in a twist that can only be described as holy intervention, instead of pressing charges, the church announced it would be conducting its own investigation. This understandably angered parents, whose charitable donations and increased school fees had paid for the nuns' high-roller lifestyle. It also didn't help when the church tried to reassure parents when they wrote, No student or program at St. James has suffered any loss of educational resources, opportunities, or innovations. In sum, the education of your children has not and will not be affected by these events. It's a crime, right. I mean, just because they're in a special place doesn't mean they can do that. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So, and I, I, I like to know what they did with the money. As nuns, I don't know. What, what, what could they spend it on? I don't know. The disgraced nuns managed to stay clear of the public spotlight, leaving it with the church to speak on their behalf. The church claimed the pair were extremely remorseful and that both sought forgiveness and prayers of their parish and school community. The church and archdiocese are choosing to not press criminal charges against the sisters. They say they plan to address the situation internally through the investigation, restitution, and the sanctions on the sisters. But it seems like a scene right out of Sister Act, right? You can just... And that, it seemed, was about the extent of any real consequences. But only weeks later, the police, FBI, and IRS jointly launched a criminal investigation into the matter. In June 2021, federal prosecutors filed charges against Sister Mary Margaret Kruper, including one count of wire fraud and one count of money laundering. In the end, she pled guilty to stealing more than $835,000. As part of the deal, she admitted to falsifying monthly and annual financial reports in order to conceal the embezzlement. The theft, which allegedly took place over a decade ago, was undetected because they took money from a reserve fund. It did not immediately attract the attention of auditors and other officials. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, when Sister Mary is sentenced in February 2022, she faces up to 40 years in federal prison. As for her partner in crime, it's not clear at this stage whether Sister Lana Chang will also be facing charges. But it's safe to assume she's praying for absolution. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Within the walls of a convent, things have been known to get a lot more sinister than just stealing money. One of these more disturbing scandals hit a congregation in the South Indian state of Kerala. On March 27, 1992, a nun named Sister Abaya was reported missing from her convent. A search of the grounds was undertaken for the 19-year-old, who, at the time, had been busy with her college studies. The search went on all night, and by late morning, they had found her. Sister Abaya's lifeless body was lying on the bottom of a nearby well. When authorities arrived to examine the scene, they noticed a few things that seemed a bit unusual. For one, the refrigerator door in the convent's kitchen was left wide open. A bottle of water had spilled on the floor, and a slipper belonging to Sister Abaya was discovered under the fridge. Also, her veil was found caught on the kitchen door. It was puzzling, and, more importantly, it was suspicious. To police, it appeared that Sister Abaya had gone to the kitchen to get a drink in the early hours, and perhaps met with foul play. When officials conducted a post-mortem, it revealed that Sister Abaya had sustained abrasions to her right shoulder and hip. There were also two small cuts above her right ear, and extensive bruising to her head. Even though the head injuries were extremely serious and potentially fatal, it was concluded that Sister Abaya had drowned. Curiously, the police did not allow the pathologist to visit the crime scene, which would have helped determine the cause of death. The tragic incident was ultimately concluded to be suicide. This theory was even supported by the convent's mother superior. But according to court documents, almost 70 of Sister Abaya's fellow nuns disagreed. They were adamant it was a homicide. The nuns petitioned government to pursue their own investigation and by mid-April, the Kerala State Police crime branch had taken control of the investigation. Nine months later, they formally announced their findings. Sister Abaya had in fact died by suicide. While they claimed she had been experiencing mental health issues, to many, something about the official version wasn't right. Her supporters forged ahead and formed the Sister Abaya Case Action Council In response to their collective grievance, the Kerala High Court eventually rejected the initial post-mortem findings. In March 1993, the investigation was transferred to India's Central Bureau of Investigation, or CBI. The lead investigator disagreed with the Kerala police, who still fully believed the incident was a case of suicide. As far as doctors were concerned, all the evidence pointed to murder. 
The lead investigator, however, was fighting an uphill battle. The pressure from his superiors to record the death as a suicide was too much, and he was forced to resign. By then, the case had made national headlines, but for all the wrong reasons. Instead of focusing on the death of the young woman, the spotlight had shifted to corruption, bribery, threats, and cover-ups within the various investigative agencies involved. In 1994, the Action Council, along with some influential politicians, demanded the removal of the CBI official trying to have the death recorded as a suicide. The following year, more forensic testing was conducted at the well, this time using a mannequin. The experiment provided additional supporting evidence that Sister Obaya had indeed been murdered. It had taken three long years since her death, but the CBI finally announced that the incident was a homicide and that arrests would follow. The only problem was, officials did not have enough evidence to identify the killer or killers. So everything ground to a halt. The fiasco generated widespread public demonstrations outside the CBI headquarters and in front of the offices of several politicians. The frustration was primarily over the ongoing delays in the case, which seemed to be never-ending. However, in late 1996, the CBI made a shocking backflip. It announced that Sister Abaya's manner of death could not be determined. They petitioned the court to close the investigation due to a lack of evidence. Thankfully, the court rejected both the CBI's conclusion and the request to shut down the case. The investigators had, in no uncertain terms, been publicly scolded. As if competing for the laziest underperforming employee award, the CBI did just about nothing as they continued to drag their feet over the investigation. The unprofessional behavior resulted in an entirely new CBI team being appointed in the late 1990s. Unfortunately, this did little to invigorate an already failing investigation. Between 1998 and 2005, the case had been turned into a bureaucratic nightmare. Multiple requests from the CBI for the case to be closed due to a lack of evidence were repeatedly denied by the High Court. There seemed to be no end in sight. But then something happened that would change the course of the investigation. It turned out that someone's conscience eventually got the better of them. On the night Sister Obaya was found dead, a man had broken onto the convent grounds, hoping to steal some copper wire. Before he committed his own crime, though, he witnessed three individuals walking around, which was extremely unusual for that time of night. After the man came forward with the information in 2007, it didn't take long before the mysterious night owls were identified. The group included two priests, Father Thomas Couture and Father Jose Puthrakail. The third person was a nun named Sister Sefi. The trio were subjected to a controversial investigative tool used in India, known as narcoanalysis testing. The process involves suspects being injected with drugs, which alters their mental state, to such an extent that it's much like being hypnotized. Basically, it's a crude attempt at using a truth serum 
to elicit a confession. The subsequent interviews conducted under this so-called narcoanalysis were recorded on video and presented to the High Court. There was, however, enormous public debate as to whether the recordings had been doctored in any way, which would make them inadmissible. By late 2008, 16 years after the case began, the High Court had finally run out of patience. A new team of investigators was brought in to provide a fresh perspective on the evidence collected. They also did a bit of legwork, taking statements from people who lived near the convent at the time of Sister Abaya's death. Their diligence paid off. One neighbor told detectives that, the day before the nun died, he also had seen the two priests at the convent along with Sister Sefi. With now two witnesses telling the same story, the CBI finally arrested the trio. The story of what really happened that night started to unfold. The CBI stated that Sister Abaya awoke in the early hours of March 27, 1992. She went downstairs to the convent kitchen to get a drink from the refrigerator when she heard a strange noise and went to check it out. When she entered the room, she unexpectedly found herself in the presence of the two accused priests and Sister Sefi. The group was said to be in a compromising position. Gripped with fear that Sister Abaya would expose their indiscretion, Father Kator grabbed her, covering her mouth as she tried to scream. Sister Sefi then struck the younger nun three times on the back of the head with what investigators believe was an axe. With Sister Abaya incapacitated, the three accused carried the body out of the convent and dropped it down the well. In January 2009, not long after being arrested, the three accused were granted bail. But six months later, their freedom ended. All three were taken into custody again and charged with murder, defamation, and destruction of evidence. Just when prosecutors thought the case was coming to an end, they were hit with more roadblocks. There were allegations that local police mishandled and even destroyed evidence. On top of that, one of the key investigators committed suicide. It seemed mounting pressure on the case was too much for him to take. In March 2018, Father Puthrakail was acquitted of any involvement with the murder. In the end, authorities found there simply wasn't enough evidence proving he'd been at the convent on the night in question. Two and a half years later, the longest-running investigation in Kerala history finally went to court. It had been 12 years since Father Kator and Sister Sefi had been arrested, accused of murdering Sister Abaya. In December 2020, the pair were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. 28-year wait for justice has ended for Kerala's Sister Abaya. A special CBI court has sentenced a Catholic priest and a nun to life in prison for murdering Sister Abhaya back in 1992. The sentencing came a day after the two were convicted by the same court.
Historically, nuns have been known for opening their convent doors to those in need. The weary, destitute, and lost were always welcome. That kindness extended to nuns from other convents as well. After all, it would be unchristian to turn away a sister in need. However, in early 2020, a nun in Italy was about to find out that even holy helpers have limits. The nun had sought accommodation at a convent in the Lombardy region of the country. But it didn't take long before one of the other nuns became suspicious of the new arrival. She couldn't quite put her finger on it, but there was something about her background story that didn't fit. It was enough that the nun called police. What happened next became one of the most sensational stories to make international headlines. It was a case of life truly imitating art. The 47-year-old woman staying at the convent had been on the move throughout northern Italy for two years. Turns out, in 2017, she had been charged with fraud in Sicily. She had gone on the run, but was sentenced in absentia to two years in prison. In the meantime, she stayed hidden within the different convents throughout the region, impersonating a nun. As investigators traced the woman's movements and interviewed the sisters she had deceived, several stories emerged. The fugitive, who the other nuns described as kind and trustworthy, changed her name every time she moved. According to reports, on one occasion, she claimed to be the niece of one of the sisters. At another convent, she passed herself off as a visiting mother superior. Her story, however, about why she was there always stayed the same. The woman claimed that she was seriously ill and in need of somewhere to rest. And that's where the story ends for now. Apparently still on the lam, the woman received additional charges of claiming a false identity. But until the law catches up to her, she remains a nun on the run. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Gemma Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. 
Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode. I've been trying to reach you Ever since you bought that suit and tie Man, you look nice And dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry But I just want you to love me Even The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.